So today's Easter. Today we celebrate the most important day on the Christian calendar of all. I would even argue even greater than Christmas because today is the fulfillment of everything that Jesus came to accomplish. Um, If you've been around Christian circles for any length of time, you know that Christians do not agree on everything. Have you noticed that? In fact, you can even say that there's a lot that Christians disagree with on each other, that we're not here to talk about that. But there is one thing unilaterally across the board that every Christian on the entire planet, across every nation, every color, every ethnicity, all agree on. In fact, I would argue it's the most important thing that every Christian on this planet agrees upon is that God came into this world His son died, rose again, and this is the day that we celebrate. That's what this day is all about. So I'm so glad you guys are here this morning. I'm going to pray. We're going to jump in. If you guys don't have a Bible, why don't you raise your hand? We have some ushers that would love to get you a Bible. As they are getting that to you, I'm going to pray, and then we will begin to get to work looking at some really important passages of Scripture to remind us the significance and really what this day is all about. About. If you don't have a Bible, if you don't own a Bible, please go ahead and keep this. It's our gift to you. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your great love. Thank you for enduring what you endured. Thank you for carrying the cross. Thank you for enduring the shame. And thank you ultimately for conquering our greatest enemy, both sin and death, and showing us a path of life and newness and inviting us to be a part of that. So, Lord, we commit this entire time into your hands, and we pray all of these things in Jesus' name, and we all said together, amen. Why don't you all grab a seat? In fact, if you would like, you can open up your Bible. We're going to be looking at a handful of passages here this morning, but one primary one is John chapter 20. So if you would like, you can go ahead and open up to there right now, John chapter 20, and we will be coming back to that. In fact, you can just open there, keep your finger there, and we will actually be going back to Genesis chapter 1. But what I want to do is I want to begin by taking a look at kind of a theme that gets traced throughout the entirety of the scripture itself, both Old and New Testament. It's the phrase or the word that I would just use, newness. Or to even think of it in more of a biblical context, what God describes as making all things new. That's what God is up to. In fact, I would even argue that's exactly what Jesus did and demonstrated and proved by rising again from the dead, is that he is on a path to create all things new, which indicates that all things right now are in a state of death, decay, dying, and all of us, we're aware of that. We know that. We feel the impacts of that. We feel the ache of that. We feel the shame of that, the guilt of that, the pain of that. We oftentimes are putting forth effort and energy to reverse the effects of all of that decay. It's the reason why we work out. It's the reason why we wear makeup. It's the reason why we dress up. It's the reason why we do all of these things that have to do with health and fitness and eat well because we feel the ache of decay and we are trying desperately to reverse the effects of that. And yet what the claim of Easter or Resurrection Sunday is all about is that God has come into this world to deal with the consequences or the effect or that which causes death in the first place, and then ultimately to reverse it entirely. And that's it. Let me read you a quote from C.S. Lewis. It says this, out of the weight of glory. He describes that at present, we are on the outside of this world, the world of newness. 
the wrong side of the door. We discern the freshness, the newness, the purity of the morning. However, in this moment, we cannot fully mingle the splendors that we perceive. But all the leaves of the New Testament, Scripture in total, I would argue, are all wrestling with the rumor that it will not always be so. Someday, C.S. Lewis goes on to say, we shall all get in who trusts Jesus is his whole implication. The point that he is making is that the entirety of the Scripture points to this reality that God is up to something, doing something that has to do with making all things new. What I want to do right now is I want to look at some of those rustling pages and follow this theme or this storyline throughout the entire Bible, and we'll do this in a handful of ways. I would argue that right now, for every one of us, the greatest need that you and I have in our lives is we need this newness. I'm afraid and I'm concerned that for many of us, we just simply settle for parodies, we settle for counterfeits, we settle for things that will not last, and yet we call them new. We oftentimes buy the propaganda from the marketing priests and priestesses that we need. Really, our greatest need is we need a new iPhone, we need a new car, we need a new home, we need a new love life, we need a new experience, we need a new adventure. But the reality is what we really need is newness, newness that comes from God. If God is who he claims to be, that he is the author of all things new. All sense of newness comes from him. All that we can have in the rest of this world is this sense of decay because this world is in a state of brokenness and disrepair. And Jesus claims to be making all things new. And with that, I want to begin to take a look at this theme of making all things new, how God enters into the world and begins to do all of this. There's three main things that we'll just kind of take a look at, I think, that are kind of interwoven with this theme of newness. And it goes something like this. I think every time we see God begin to speak, and again, we can spend a lot of time on a lot of passages in the Bible, we'll just take a look at a handful of them and kind of trace this theme. We're going to see the idea of promise. God makes a promise, a declaration. We can think of it this way. The second thing is that we see that God has this level of responsibility, that God intervenes, God deals with, he begins to step in and or he restrains that which causes newness or brings about newness. He comes in and addresses that which is filled with decay and death and brokenness, and then ultimately fulfillment. So promise, responsibility, and fulfillment. These are all things that we see that God is going to be doing through the passages that we'll be reading. So just keep that theme in mind with coupled with the idea of newness. So if you'd like, turn to Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. We'll just kind of make our way through a handful of different passages, beginning from the very book of the Bible all the way to the very end of the book of the Bible. So Genesis chapter 3, I'll just read through the stories, I'll make some comments as I go, and I will be done. My Easter gift to you is a short sermon. You're welcome. Genesis chapter 3 verse 8 says this, Adam and Eve heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of God. So the very first movement that we see after the creation is that Adam and Eve, something happens, they're put into this Edenic world, it's perfect, it's paradise as we would describe it. And yet something transpires, something happens, that now Adam and Eve are aware. There's a guilt. There's a sense of shame. Now they're running. Rather than being able to be open and unashamed in front of God, they run from God. 
people that run, people that hide, people that feel the need to cover up or stand behind somebody else, is the, there's a sense of fear. Something's not well or right or in place in their life. Something's out of place, we would say. In other words, it's prone to decay. It's been touched by death. And so we see this happening with Adam and Eve. Then verse 9, it goes on to say, But the Lord God called and he said, Where are you? And Adam then heard the sound of, When I heard the sound of you in the garden, I was afraid because I was naked, and so I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? And then the Lord God asked, what is it that you have done? And then the woman said, the serpent deceived me, and then I ate. And then the Lord God said to the serpent, and this is skipping on down to verse 14, God then begins to say, I'm going to deal with the serpent. And then he goes on to say, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So in this beginning intro story of this entire narrative of humanity, the way the Bible describes it, is human beings had this relationship that was right at one state. And then through a course of decisions, deception and decisions, that led human beings to disobedience with God, which led them to run from God, and God stepping in saying, decay and death and brokenness has now been unleashed upon the planet, upon your lives, upon your relationships, and they feel the ache of that. We all know what this is like. We've all experienced some degree of this. And yet God steps in and says, I'm going to deal with this. I'm going to not just deal with it by making you a better person or giving you a new relationship. God says, I'm going to deal with it by, first of all, addressing the source of brokenness, which is this snake. God says, I'm going to crush the head of the serpent. Actually, God says, my servant will come in. The seed of the woman will come in and will begin to crush the head of the snake. So we can, this initial idea that God puts forth is that one will come and will be the snake crusher. One will come and step in and deal with the source, the cause of brokenness and decay and death, and then set the world to right. So this is the very intro. Proto-evangelion is the big idea, the word that's used there, meaning the, the evangelical, the word, the preaching, the gospel, the good news, even before the good news was unleashed throughout the rest of the Bible. Skip forward, really far forward, into the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 42. We're going to cross a lot of years of history. So what happens now through history is that the people of Israel get established. They become sort of this nation that God has called them, used them, established them, blessed them. The people of Israel, they were to be in what was called a covenantal relationship with God, like a marriage they were to love God, they were to be devoted to God, be faithful to God, and God says, in turn, I'm going to take care of you, I will establish you, I will protect you, and big evil empires will arise and come against you, I will, I will be your defender. And what ended up happening was God says, as long as you are faithful to me, then I'll be faithful to you. And what happened was the people of Israel, we know the story, they were not faithful to God. They regularly and repeatedly turned their backs on God. And as a result, they walked away from that covenantal relationship. And by walking away from the covenantal relationship with God, they walked away from the protection. And so which meant it made them vulnerable. Their lives, their livelihoods were now vulnerable to the brokenness that was all around them. 
In, in Isaiah's day, there was a threat from what was known as the Assyrian Empire that was arising that would, they would come in and they would devour and destroy the people of Israel. And so what you had was this nation concerned about their well-being, their future. The big questions they were dealing with were not unlike the questions that we're dealing with is, where's justice going to come from? Where's good going to come? Where's righteousness? And who's going to establish this? And where's the higher court of appeal that we can turn to that will protect us and help us and establish us and keep us safe? And what about our kids? And what about their future? And what about these people that are maybe living off in the margins? Who's going to take care of them? These were their questions. Because what they saw was all of those that were vulnerable were being devoured. They were being destroyed. They were being forgotten. They were being thrown to the grinding teeth of a culture that didn't care about them. So these are the questions that were on their mind. How will God make right that which is prone towards decay and death? And this is where God speaks through this guy by the name of Isaiah. He's a prophet. He speaks forth what he senses God speaking to him. In Isaiah chapter 42, verses 1, and then I'll read from verses 3 3 through 7 and just make some comments as we go through. Verse 1, God speaks to Isaiah, and he says this, Look at my servant. Now, this servant, whoever this person is, whoever this one is, is obviously not on the scene yet. However, Isaiah's saying through the speaking forth of God, One day, this servant, this chosen one, will arise, and he will do something. God's making this promise. Remember the three things that we described, the promise, the responsibility, and then the fulfillment. The shocking thing with regard to that is that God is the one that says, I will be the responsible party. I will take care of that which is broken. One of the chief ways of understanding a good leader or seeing a good leader, identifying a good leader, is one that will take responsibility for others. Our culture, a lot of times today, is like, well, I didn't make that mess. Why should I have to deal with it? That's what a leader does. A leader says, I didn't make that mess. I'm going to take care of it for those other people. This is is exactly what God does. This is what a good husband does. Because I didn't make the mess. I didn't create the problem with my kids. But you step in, and you do something about it. That's what God does. He steps in, and he does something about it. So God says, look at my servant, my chosen one, who pleases me. I will put my spirit upon him. He will bring justice to all nations. Listen carefully. He will not crush the weakest reed or put out a flickering candle. He will bring justice to all those who have been wronged. He goes on to say, he will not falter or lose heart until justice prevails throughout all the earth. Verse 6, I, the Lord, have called you, my servant, to demonstrate my righteousness I will take you by the hand and guard you, and I will give you to my people Israel as a symbol, listen, of my covenant for you. And then he finishes his little segment right here. He says, you will free the captives from prison, releasing those who sit in darkness. Verse 9 is really important. Behold, the former things that have come to pass, now I declare that I make all things new. So what God is stating here is that I see the brokenness. I see the decay. I'm aware of it. God even knows the root cause of this. The serpent, the covenant with the serpent, as opposed to the covenant relationship with God, as a result, brought forth injustice and brokenness and people being devoured by the system. 
And God's saying, I've come into this world, and the way that I'm going to take care of this, I will send my servant. My servant will come. He pleases me. He will bring justice. Listen to how he describes this. He will bring justice to the nations. He will bring justice to individuals. And then he goes on to say in verse 4, he will not falter or lose heart and justice until justice prevails throughout the entire earth. Did you catch those, those layers? Telescoping layers, nations, individuals, nations, and the entire earth. What I love, what he describes about even individuals, he says, he will not crush the weakest reed or the flickering candle. What a poetic way of describing someone that feels really, really fragile. Have you ever felt like that? Like a flickering candle. A bruised reed. You know what a reed is? A reed is like a, like a stick or it's a, something that grows within a, in the water. And it's, it was used because they were typically straight. But a bruised reed is one that's kind of bent over. Can't stand upright. What's the temptation that someone who feels very powerful when they see a flickering candle or a bruised reed, is to go up and just break the thing all the way or to blow the candle out. It's worthless. God says, I don't, my servant won't do that. In fact, what he will do is the converse. He will actually take the smoldering candle and protect it and cup it and breathe life back into it so it becomes a roaring flame again. And he will take a bruised reed that feels fragile and bruised and hurt and wounded and make it so that it becomes strong and strengthened again. It's not until we come to the person of Jesus that we see Jesus literally doing every single thing that Isaiah describes. Now we enter into the story of Jesus So, so far in the story of this theme of newness, or all things new, we see God step in as the snake crusher. We see God step in as the justice bringer, the one who brings justice. Uh, The idea of justice is the idea of making things right, bringing goodness. Righteousness and justice were two words that oftentimes got utilized together as a couplet. But the big idea is that God is taking that which is prone towards injustice, prone towards brokenness, prone towards unrighteousness, whereby people are taking advantage of other people. And God says, I will reorient the world so that it will be one filled with justice. Now, thirdly, we come to the passage of John chapter 20. And this is the story, obviously, that many of us are familiar with. You may have even read it at some point this morning. It's the story of when Jesus is resurrected from the dead. Mary, one of the followers of Jesus, goes to the tomb at the early onset of the morning, and here's where the story picks up in verse 1. I'll just read verse 1, and then I'll jump forward to verse 11, and I'll read verses 13 to 16. So I'm going to be all over the place in this chapter, because it's a very lengthy chapter. We don't have a whole lot of time, because I told you my sermon's going to be short. So the point that I I want to make as we jump into this is verse 1 says this, early on Sunday morning, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb and found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. Verse 11, Mary was standing outside the tomb crying. Let's pause and think about this. In this moment, you sense total, utter disorientation and despair. Everything that she had hoped crushed. Has it ever happened to you? Have you ever had dreams that you had hoped were going to come true? You envisioned a future for yourself? 
Maybe you and your loved one, or you hoping to maybe have a child, or you hoping to have a life somewhere, someplace, in a career, in a vocation, and you envisioned it playing out some way, and then all of a sudden something happens where everything steals out away. That emotion, that despair, this is Mary at the tomb, realizing everything that she had hoped was going to come to pass has now been suspended and stopped. And all of a sudden, we see in the story, she turned to leave, and she saw someone standing there, and it was Jesus, but she did not recognize him. And Jesus said to her, dear woman, why are you crying? It's a question that Jesus asks. There's a handful of questions, actually, that Jesus asks to a handful of disciples. This is just one of many that are recorded for us. And what's fascinating to me is that Jesus asked these really important, why, why are you crying? As, as if to suggest you apparently don't know what's happened. Because if you had known what happened, those tears would be put into a different context. Those tears, though profound and real and rooted in real pain and grief and loss, are not the end of the story. And I would suggest to you, if you are a follower of Jesus, the pain, the grief that you feel may be real, the reality of lost dreams and hopes and anticipations may feel a deep sense of grief, but it's not the end of the story, apparently. And then Jesus says to her, who are you looking for? She had actually thought he was the gardener. Sir, she said, if you have taken away the body, please tell me where you have put him, and I will go and get him. Mary, Jesus then said. She turned to him and cried out, Rabboni, which is translated teacher. So this exchange, this, this story right here is so filled with newness. And the story actually goes on because Jesus then appears to his disciples, the other leaders, the other people that, were, that he was a part of and accompanied with. And you just see the idea, the concept of newness literally go everywhere. Again, we see these three ideas of God's promise. Jesus had promised that this would happen. We see the responsibility. God takes full responsibility. He, that's what happened on Good Friday. He addresses the forces of evil. And the forces of evil were not exactly what the people of Israel thought it was or his followers. They had thought that the real evil in the world was Rome or rogue religious leaders. They had never even thought that the real evil might have been inbred sin and rebellion and rejection of Yahweh God. Jesus addressed that evil. He took it upon himself. That's what Good Friday was all about. And that evil did to Jesus what the evil in our lives does to us. It dehumanizes, it destroys, it crushes. He takes it upon himself. And it allows evil to do to him exactly what it does to us, ultimately to the point of death, burial, and as we see the story continue, resurrection. He conquers it. This is absolutely amazing. It's the newness of God breathing forth, coming out. Then lastly, I'm going to take a look at Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5. This is where the story gets super good. Listen, Revelation chapter 21. Then 
John, who's writing this, he says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, and the first heaven, the first earth, had passed away, and the sea was no more. Then I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from heaven, from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be their God. Listen to what God apparently himself will do. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Neither will be there any mourning, crying, pain. For all the former things have passed away. Verse 5. And he who is seated upon the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. So, so far in this story, what we've seen from Genesis is the snake crusher. We see God acting as the justice bringer. Thirdly, we see in John, Jesus operating as the hope restorer. And then finally, we see in Revelation, God acting as the creation redeemer. God stepping in, taking full responsibility for the evil and brokenness has been unleashed on this planet by yours truly and all of us in this parking lot. G.K. Chesterton, in his book, Orthodoxy, said this, and I'll wrap it up. Because children have an abounding vitality, because they are in spirit, fierce, and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. Have you noticed that? Kids want things to be done over and over and over and over and over again. They seem to have this uncanny ability to just keep going round and round and round and never get exhausted. He goes on to say, they always say, do it again. And grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exalt in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exalt in monotony. It is possible that God says, every morning, do it again to the sun. And every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic, necessarily, that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never got tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy. For we all have sinned and grown old. And perhaps it's our father who's actually younger than we. Our greatest need is newness, I would argue. Perhaps like G.K. Chesterton suggests, and the Bible seems to reaffirm over and over again that we have sinned and grown old and are desperately looking for ways to revitalize ourselves, to make things new, to hold on to that which we can try to grasp and hold on to and cling to as strongly as we can until it slips out of our hands. Perhaps our greatest need today is to turn to the fountain of newness, the God who makes all things new, of which today, Resurrection Sunday, is the most vibrant most saturated reminder that God is alive and he's conquered the grave. And all who have placed confidence and hope in this God who sent Jesus into this world to address 
the evil and the brokenness and the decay and the death and the destruction that you and I face daily, that he's offered a way out and a way forward and a future and a hope. So I don't know where you're at today, and as we finish, we're going to have the worship team come on up, and we're going to stand and celebrate. So how about we all do that right now? And as you are here this moment, maybe for some of you, you're, you're not a Christian. Maybe the story of Jesus is new to you. You have a degree of curiosity about it. Maybe you're here this morning and you are crying out inside of you saying, I want this, I long for this, I need this. My encouragement to you, an invitation to you would be to just trust this Jesus in whatever limited way that you feel like you're even capable. Just ask God, God, make me new. I surrender myself to you. Whatever way that you're able to pray, God hears it. If you're here this morning and you're a follower of Jesus, my invitation to you would be to lift up your voice loudly and sing to this great God because that's what happens when newness comes. The natural response to all things that are new. You know that. You get a new job. You get a new iPhone. You get a new gadget, you get a new whatever, you fill in the blank. There's a moment where it's like, ah, this is awesome. But at some point, that wears off. So my invitation to you would be, as we now pray and worship, for you to just, wherever you're at, trust this God that's done great things for you. So let me pray, and we'll sing, we'll sing loudly. Jesus, thank you for your great love. We now surrender and turn our hearts over to you. Jesus, thank you for being king over all things. You're a good king. You're a king that doesn't just simply come in and make demands. You're a king that comes and assumes responsibility for things that you did not create, you did not cause, and you bear the consequences in yourself and then give us the benefits of it all, of that victory. So Jesus, we lift up our voices loudly to sing to you.